Let us take our Bibles and turn first for our New Testament reading to Romans chapter 9, verse 21 through 24, and then we will continue our regular readings and the book of Genesis. Our New Testament reading fits very well with the message this morning. Now, it may not be uh, noticed by you that we are now coming to our fifth sermon in the chapter 15 of Genesis in the last 12 months. I preached two sermons from Genesis 15 back in May because I, well, I was itching to preach on faith alone. And I preached the whole chapter in two consecutive Sundays back in May. So if you are kind of behind, you're welcome to go back and get those as well. They're out on the internet, on our webpage. And then we've preached two sermons just in the last month uh, from Genesis 15, and this morning, the last. And this is, uh, trust me, this is in no way a repeat. I've, I've found in God's word more to say about the things of Genesis 15. Uh, Of course, the Lord wants it said. Our reading this morning will then be Romans 9 and then Genesis 15, 7 through 21. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, we draw near to you now to hear your word publicly read, as is your holy will. As Paul said to Timothy, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to hear it preached as also was said by apostolic injunction. Preach the word. O Lord, we do what we know that you approve. And this is our great peace and delight. Help us, Lord. Help us, we pray now, upon hearing the word read and preached, to by faith understand. Give us this help and understanding. Give us reformation. Help us throw away that which is a hindrance to our agreeing with you and help us adopt and strengthen that which will help us, Lord, be in accord with you and your holy will and word. O Lord, we pray that in your great mercies to us, purchased by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, you would stoop low and help us. We have no help but that which comes from the Lord, even on these matters today, Lord. Help us now, help our sons, our daughters, help all who are gathered here to recognize the voice of the Master, Jesus Christ, and the kingly authority herein the king's word, heralded by his servant in this village, in this holy place, the very heavenly Jerusalem, where we have come through his body. In his name, amen. Romans 9, beginning at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use, and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Genesis 15 now. beginning at verse 7 through the end of the chapter. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Beloved, one helpful way to understand and even to explain the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ comes from the story of the homesteading father. One day this father looked out on the horizon and recognized all the signs of a prairie fire moving fast and furious towards his farm. He knew there was no chance his family would escape. He sent his son into the house to find a box of matches. Taking the box, the father struck a match and set a fire of his own. Getting help from the wind, the father's fire rose up quickly from the dry ground and began to burn across the farm. After several minutes, the father led his family onto newly burnt ground, which is where they stood minutes later when the the prairie fire reached the farm. Flames came up to the burnt-out ground but found no fuel there to burn. The prairie fire burned and raged, but it skipped around all the ground that had already been burned. The farmer, his wife, his children were all saved. 
The cross of Jesus Christ is the burnt out ground. It is the ground of safety from all the fires of God's wrath against our sin. When the fire of divine judgment reaches the cross, there the wrath of God on sin has already been exhausted in the death of Christ, making the cross of Christ a hiding place, a shelter, a stronghold. The cross is a refuge for sinners, not because God's wrath cannot get in, but because God's wrath has already been. God's wrath against your sin has come to the cross of Christ, which means God's love for sinners has come to the cross of Christ. At the cross, he has justly dealt with your sins, and he has mercifully sheltered you at his own expense. He did not spare his own son, the scripture says, but gave him up for us all, Romans 8, 32. 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah foretold how Christ's death would exhaust God's wrath against our sin. Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What you have just heard from Isaiah is not only the very heart of the Christian gospel. It is also the core narrative of human history. The central thread of human history is the divine plan to shelter a people from the wrath of God, a wrath that is always being revealed in the earth, yet also coming at the very end of history in its consummation. Listen to how Nahum the prophet explains this core narrative of human history. Now Nahum served the Lord about 50 years after Isaiah. God raised Nahum up to proclaim an oracle against the city of Nineveh. Yes, the same city that Jonah had previously visited. That city had declined and returned back into its decadence and willfulness and rebellion against God a great Gentile city. Nahum's oracle begins, however, with a global and a historical perspective of God's dealings with man. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. 
The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 through 8. Now let me ask you, is what you just heard the common view of human history? Is it commonly believed among men today that the wrath of God is always prowling behind the narratives in which men live their lives, in which countries rise and fall and go to war? Is it the common view that the wrath of God is always prowling behind the thread of history and that the full and final conflagration of God's wrath is getting closer each day? Is that the common view? Is it commonly believed among men that they desperately need a stronghold for that day, for today? It is not the common view. The common view of human history today is that man is progressively getting better. History today is largely viewed through a technological consumer lens. Man is progressively making his life more convenient by creating and consuming technology that brings more of life under man's control. And it is a a deadly and a dreadful deception that men have seen this and have then taken it and used it to interpret history and where it is headed and where it has come from. But from this perspective of history, man's earthly Garden of Eden is still out in the future somewhere, yet to come, instead of something man lost in the past due to sin. What is the great sin of man in today's common view of history, this technological, consumer-driven view? The great sin is to not adequately support the technological consumer progress that allows you to remove a baby from the womb for less than $1,000 and be home for dinner, that allows you to do all sorts of things to your body to advance your name. Who is the great judge then in this view of history? Other men who are not great judges at all. But the living God does not deceive. God has been telling us the truth about the core narrative of all human history ever since man first rebelled and first fell into sin. And here in our Genesis 15 text this morning, God again shows us the central thread of human history. God's wrath against man's sinful and evil ways is a raging fire of judgment all through this text, 7 through 21. I'm going to show it to you. 
But right there also, in the midst of that fire, is a stronghold of safety, a shelter for the spiritual children of Abraham, those who have faith like him in the promised offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So right there in the midst of this raging fire is a burned out, burned over stronghold of safety. Not because there is no judgment there, but because the judgment has already fallen and it has fallen upon the Lord himself. So let's take a look. Let's first take notice of the absolutely massive prairie fire of divine wrath that is clearly and evidently before us in this reading. God's sober judgment upon man's sin is everywhere in this scene with Abram. Notice it first in the preparation for the covenant-making ritual. God requires several animals to be cut in half and arranged to create what? A pathway of blood. Verse 9 and 10. And this pathway of blood is a sign that everything that is about to happen is taking into account the highest standards of duty and integrity and righteousness, yes, and even justice. If either partner to this covenant fails to be upright, then the judgment of being cut off, just like these animals, will be the judgment that falls upon the unfaithful partner. Wrath is present on the ground. But there are even more threats of judgment in this scene. There are the birds of prey in verse 11. Birds of prey coming down on dead carcasses is a frequent sign throughout Holy Scripture of the full execution of justice. God makes it clear by often referring to birds of prey that his justice against evildoers is not with one hand behind his back, that it is not a middling way of justice. It is a full weight, fully exhaustive justice, even to the point of birds of prey coming and eating the carcasses of God's enemies. That is what we are to see here as well. Full justice coming upon evildoers, evildoers who breach the covenant with God. So the whole scene is set before us as a scene of impending doom and death should one of the two partners in this treaty, this covenant, be less than faithful. Then look at verse 12. The Lord puts Abram to sleep. Now at first we don't understand this sleep fully until we arrive at verse 17. But what we know from verse 12 is that Abram's sleep is not the sleep of a purring kitty. We have a new cat in the house. It purrs an awful lot, but not when it's running down the hallway trying to get away from me. It purrs when it's sleeping on mom's lap. That's not the sleep of Abram. The text says dreadful 
and great darkness fell upon him. As a partner of this covenant, Abram is experiencing the great weight, even in his God-appointed sleep. The great weight of all that is at stake here. Great trouble is coming upon Abram's offspring, verse 13 says, for they shall come into Egypt as sojourners, but they will then become slaves, and then they will become afflicted slaves. There is a descent of misery declared in verse 13. And this is part of the dreadful and great darkness that has fallen upon Abram. But there is another part of the dread and darkness. It is the prospect that God would turn and find Abram and his offspring unfaithful. All of this servitude and affliction shall last 400 years, or as verse 16 says, the fourth generation. Generations were longer back then when men lived 100 and 120 years. The exact number of years we find out later in two scriptures was 430. Here is an estimate. Not an estimate that the Lord didn't know, but the way he rounded it off. The only way, though, that they will come out of Egypt, the text says, is stated in verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Think about that. God is saying that the Abrahamites, to coin a phrase, the Abrahamites who will become afflicted slaves, they will not come out of Egypt because they deserve to come out. They will come out by an act of divine grace when Yahweh comes in judgment against their oppressors. This too is part of the dread that has fallen upon Abram. Because if God is bringing judgment on nations, if he is bringing judgment on strong and wealthy and prosperous nations, how will Abram's people survive the judgment? We'll come to the answer to that question soon enough. But then the Lord declares that even more judgment is coming. In verse 16, he says to Abram, your offspring shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, beloved, we should read verse 16 in conjunction with verse 21. Both of these verses are foretelling the post-Exodus invasion of Joshua into the land of Canaan, where the ten nations listed at the bottom of our text are to be driven out of the land. It's very important that we understand that what the Lord is telling Abram here is that he, in 400 years, will bring offspring back to this piece of land where these ten nations dwell, and they will be removed not as a random act of aggression, but as an act of divine justice because the 
Grapes of wrath have fully ripened by their iniquity. Let us put away from our minds this modernistic reading of the Bible that finds the conquest of the land of Canaan as some geopolitical act of aggression. Beloved, it is not. It is the long, slow, exhaustive outworking of the wrath of God upon the iniquities of the people in this land. The Lord makes this especially poignant to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 9 when he says to them about the coming conquest at the end of the 400 years. Deuteronomy 9.4, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But even this leaves a shadow upon the heart of Abram. If the Lord is going to be removing a people in this land because their iniquities have ripened, and it is not the righteousness of my offspring that brings us to this land, then why are we allowed to stand and dwell with the living God in this place? We'll come to the answer. What we are to learn from verse 16 as the Church of Jesus Christ is that much of human history, the travails and the labor pains of nations, the rise and fall of them, is the simple outworking of God's wrath upon wicked people. But we are also to learn simultaneously that Yahweh is way more patient than you and way more patient than me. You see, verse 16 is not only a clear testimony to the Lord's justice in executing his wrath upon a people who are filled with iniquity and violence and oppression and idolatry. It is not only that in verse 16 and 21. Verse 16 is also a grand statement of what we heard back in the Nahum reading. In the midst of all that speech of wrath, Nahum said, the Lord is slow to anger. Beloved, let us understand and let us hold together two truths simultaneously. Just because the living God has not allowed the curtains to fall in wrath upon a wicked nation or a wicked people, it does not mean that they are therefore not ripening their way closer to it. Don't let your eyes fool you. What you are seeing in the absence of an outpouring of God's wrath upon any nation or people, you are seeing his patience, not their innocence. If you remember from chapter 14, Abram had entered into his own covenant agreements with three Amorite brothers 
And they helped him rescue his nephew Lot from Ketolamar. It was a common grace covenant because the day of conquest had not yet come and it was right and fitting for Abram to be in these kind of contracts with a people who would later become removed. Beloved, let us learn as the church of Jesus Christ we are to be filled with the knowledge of God's wrath against sin but also to be filled with the knowledge of God's patience against sinners. We do not know how many Amorites united themselves to Abram's house in this season of his patience. But I urge you this morning, if you have learned anything about God's wrath, make sure you have also learned this, that he is very slow to anger, much slower than the rage of men, especially unbelieving men, who want and demand their heavens on the earth. They want the country they want. They want the politicians they want. They want the money they want. They want the lifestyles they want. They want and they want, and they are filled with rage towards evildoers. And they are so unlike God, who is so full of patience. And he gathers and harvests his souls from among whom? Evildoers. Romans 4 says quite vividly, shockingly even, that God justifies the ungodly. That doesn't mean that he affirms them in their ungodliness. It means that he forgives them in the midst of being ungodly and takes them captive and he pardons all their sins and creates a new creature from them without them having earned anything to get him started. So let us make sure we learn what we must learn about his wrath, that it is exhaustive for those who shall receive it, but it is slow. Watch out for men who are quick to anger. Watch out for women who are quick to anger. Watch out for Christians, so-called, who are so angry they only tell the wicked how wrong they are and never offer to the wicked the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Watch out for them. They are false brethren, and they sound oh so serious. But the day shall come, the day shall come for the Amorites who remained faithless, who remained enemies of God, the day shall come. Their iniquities will reach the full ripeness of God's wrath, and Joshua will be there, sent by God as the Lord's sword to drive them out of the land. I remind you that these 10 nations listed at the end of this chapter were the only nations that 
Abram's later offspring were to remove from the land. They were not to go on an international expedition of bloodthirst and swordplay. They were to go on a very focused, narrow execution of justice under the authority of God as a measure of his wrath. What I've just shared with you then about the Lord's patience and wrath is really a fundamental and important way to view the entirety of human history. Of course, there was a small microchasm of this being played out in a 430-year period that is mentioned in our text. But what we see being played out here is actually the ways of God always and everywhere. And we learn this more clearly, perhaps, in Acts chapter 14, 16. We read, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. This doesn't mean that he confirmed and affirmed them in their wickedness. It means that he did not bring his wrath upon them. They were certainly under his wrath, but he did not stop them every hour of the day and wipe them off of the face of the earth. This is also taught by Paul in Acts 17 in his sermon before the Areopagus in Athens. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And you even heard it in our Romans 9 reading. The Lord has been very slow to anger, but he has not stopped counting and keeping record of men's iniquities. We should be greatly helped then by Donald Gray Barnhouse, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, who said, quote, if the iniquity of the world had been, a full, had been full a hundred years ago, none of us would have been born to be born again. Praise God for his patience. Because, beloved, even from the moment of our conception, Ephesians 2 describes us as children of wrath. How blessed you have been. How blessed is your soul that the iniquity of the world was not measured as full by God's standard of patience before you were born. Well, this brings us then to the final act of wrath and judgment in our text. And that is found in verse 17. In verse 17, we read that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. Beloved, this is a promised prophecy of the Lord's own death. Abram is asleep. He is still a partner and still a beneficiary of this covenant that is being made, but he does not pass through the bloody pathway. Yahweh, the Lord, passes through alone. The fire pot excuse me, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch 
They are representative symbols of the Lord's own presence. And they will become a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke upon the exodus out of Egypt when the Lord leads Israel out to the Red Sea. He will guard and protect them and lead them through by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. But here, they are like the legs of a man. And they move between the pathway of blood as a forecast that the Lord himself will come and do in the flesh of a man what is here signified, that he himself will bear the weight of an unfaithful covenant partner. The Lord will not be unfaithful. But Abram and his spiritual offspring are unfaithful. So the Lord vows in verse 17 by walking the path to perform the duties and to bear the penalties of both partners. The Lord is making here a vow of death by passing through the path of death alone. And he will keep this vow of death by coming not in a leg of fire and a leg of smoke, but by coming in the legs of a man and coming in the nature of a man and bearing upon himself, the divine man, Jesus Christ, all the wrath that is to be poured out against the sins of Abram's spiritual offspring. And so we go back to Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear the wrath that is owed to their iniquities. He became a curse for us who were under the curse. Meredith Klein summarizes this section very beautifully in a short paragraph. I'll read it to you. You may find it as helpful as I. Israel was not just to evolve into the dominant power in Canaan. The kingdom must come through a supernatural act of divine grace redeeming Israel from slavery. That's their 400-year sojourn in Egypt. By an act of divine grace, redeeming Israel from slavery, a prefiguration of the eternal messianic salvation. So the Lord is prefiguring, even in the allotment of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, he is prefiguring to the whole church that we are all delivered from our bondage to slavery, our bondage to the devil. We were his servants when we were born. He has delivered a house of slaves, and he has made them a house of sons, and it was a costly deliverance to the deliverer. He himself had to become like the animals had become. 
he himself had to become an offering of blood to deliver those of flesh and blood. Beloved, this is the best news. This is the good news. This is the gospel of God. Please, please, please do not mislead people by telling them about Jesus without telling them about the wrath of God that the cross of Jesus has exhausted and silenced. When you tell people to believe in Jesus and you keep far from them any news that they are under the wrath of God today, but you say, believe in Jesus, it sounds like this to them. Believe in fairies and dwarves with magic skills. That's how they hear it. Just another fanciful name and that the real weight of what I've heard from the Christian is that believing is where everything lies. And they think you're just encouraging them to be gullible. But if you tell them about the wrath, if you tell them about the wrath, you'll sound like Jesus himself. You'll sound like the apostles themselves. You'll sound like the prophets themselves. Tell them about the wrath and their conscience, if God is saving them, if God is coming to deliver them, if they are the elect of God, their conscience, when they hear that they are under God's wrath because of their lawlessness and trespasses, their conscience will recognize a truth teller. And they can then hear well about Jesus. This is the good news that there is a burnt overground. The wrath has already fallen on the cross of Christ. It is the place of refuge. It is the place of safety. It is the stronghold of God because there his wrath has already been exhausted on his son. Come and cling to him. Come inside the burned out space the cross of Christ. If this morning you know that you are not a Christian, if this morning you know that you have never come to Christ for a sin bearer, for a wrath bearer, if you know that you have never come to Christ to have the wrath of God removed from you, not only does that mean you are yet today under his wrath, But that also means, beloved, such good news here. You can come today. Come to Christ by faith today. Make preparations to confess him publicly before the church and before the family and before the world. Acknowledge him, and he will acknowledge you when he comes on the day of his wrath with his mighty angels. He will acknowledge you and recognize you and openly acquit you saying that one's, that one's sin has all been answered. All the wrath due that one's sin has been poured out upon me. Come to him. He is, he is offering you today shelter, refuge, and stronghold. Go home saved from the fire and indignation of God. 
He himself is the Savior. Let us pray. Father, help us believe these things through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, to the glory of your name, Heavenly Father. Amen.